We have the privilege to continue to learn more and worship this Jesus. Take your Bible, open it up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the seat rack in front of you. Feel free to grab that. If you don't have one at home, this is our gift to you. We want everyone to be able to have access to the Scriptures, not only in Asia, but also here in Orange County. So make sure that you have a Bible that you use regularly. So take that Bible, your personal Bible, or even your app, and open up, dial up Mark chapter 1. Last week, we began our new series in the Gospel of Mark. We covered one verse, chapter 1, verse 1. Today, we'll get through a a couple more. (laughs) Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, is where I'd like us to start. Titled this sermon, The Mighty One, referring to Jesus Christ. He is our Mighty One, and here's another reason to proclaim His might. Listen to the story of Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Josh quoted uh, the end of Isaiah 40 a few minutes ago, and I want to quote the middle of Isaiah chapter 40, which says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so we, what we just read goes beyond culture, goes beyond whatever styles that we have right now, goes beyond popular opinion. This is the word of the Lord that endures forever. And so we have such confidence reading it, knowing that it speaks to eternity, and it's true. My hope here in the next few minutes is just to provide a little color commentary on what we've just read, this enduring word. The first thing we see here is a quote from the book of Isaiah. It's from Isaiah 40. It's Isaiah 40, verse 3, where Mark says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And so we get this idea that there will be a messenger, that there's a messenger that's set apart, that's called to the people to give them a mighty message, that there is a mighty one that is about to come. So Mark refers to Isaiah 43. He also mixes in a quote 
from the book of Malachi and, and the prophet Malachi. And so he's saying, hey, what's happening next, what I'm going to describe next, is actually prophecy, fulfilled prophecy, from the Old Testament. It mentions that this messenger will come out of or be in the wilderness. Here is an aerial photo of the Judean Israel wilderness. Doesn't it look appealing? Don't you want to go camping there sometime soon? Here's a little bit of a closer look at what the wilderness looks like in Israel. It's full of valleys and hills and rocks. Lots and lots of rocks. <laughs> the Roman Empire were really stretching into Israel during the time of the first century when Mark wrote this. Rome did some incredibly awful things. But Rome also had some incredible technology. One of the things the Roman Empire was dabbling with and perfecting, really, were creating roads where they would take well-traveled paths and they'd remove the debris and the rocks and they'd make a straight path or at least a straighter path. Here's a remnant from the first century. If you imagine, like, 2,000 years from now, do you think the five freeway will still be here? <laughs> I don't know. But here's a remnant from 2,000 years ago in Israel out in the Judean wilderness of, of a Roman world, a road. So their goal in the empire was to make straight paths so that people could travel to and from more easily. The prophet Isaiah and Malachi, as quoted here in Mark chapter 1, says that the messenger will do the same thing, but not just physically, but spiritually. The messenger will make straight paths, will clear out the debris and the confusion and give a new message. And there was a lot of debris and confusion in Israel in the first century. It was, to use a modern term, a hot mess. As religious groups argued back and forth, the pastors who were in charge of the temple in the first century uh, were living for themselves and, and not being shepherds of the people. So it was, a, it was a really difficult time to live, socially, politically, and for sure from a spiritual aspect. And so it's in this rocky soil that the messenger was to appear to make a straight path. And we read here in verse 4 of Mark 1 that this messenger was named John the Baptist. Now, I searched to and fro on Google to try to find an accurate picture of John the Baptist. And from what's described here in Mark 1, there's really nothing I could find that would match. I mean, he has a little disheveled hair here, but... This is a very neutered version of John the Baptist. You read here in verse 6, he was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. His diet was locust, which, by the way, is a great source of protein if you ever find yourself in the Judean wilderness. He ate wild honey, probably not from bees, but from date trees. So he was, it was kind of a wild guy in his appearance and his dress and even his location. Although... If you look into the Old Testament, most of the prophets were kind of outrageous figures. They were set apart by God in dress and style so that people would be able to hear their message. And so John, as the messenger, really falls in line with Old Testament prophets of 
being kind of this scraggly guy out in the wilderness, but preaching a message that, that needed to be heard. Here is a, a photo of one of the places that we would guess that John was doing his baptizing. We're not exactly sure. Why didn't God preserve the exact place? Probably because he knew we would worship it over him. But there's some guesses in Israel of where John baptized. You'll notice these first century railings are actually authentic. They had those, no. <laughs> this was put in later. But John was out in the Jordan, the scriptures say. Here is a better picture if you've never been to Israel of what this looked like. So Israel's not a very big place, but you can see on the map that the Jordan River cut through a lot of the country. Up here is the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. Above the Sea of Galilee, it's also called the Jordan River and some other names. Uh, it flows down from Mount Hermon and some other places and some springs, goes into the sea, and then the river continues all the way down to the Dead Sea where nothing leaves. <laughs> the Dead Sea is where the Jordan goes to die. I thought that was funny, but I don't know. Um, so Jerusalem is right here. Nazareth, where Jesus was living, is up here. And so somewhere in this area, John the Baptist is baptizing at the Jordan River. It seems kind of like a strange place to communicate an important message. I mean, if you think modernly how we communicate messages, we want to get everything right. We either want to make it funny so it stands out like this. This is Tori Smith, an NFL player. He and his wife announcing that they're pregnant. This is pretty good. Can you see that? Or we want to make it memorable as we announce new technology. Here's Steve Jobs in uh, January of 2007, introducing something that none of us knew we needed, but now none of us can live without, <laughs> the iPhone. That was only 11 years ago, by the way. Isn't that gnarly? So Steve Jobs had this uh, huge reveal. No one was supposed to know about it. And then he tells us about the iPhone. Even a couple months ago, this is our favorite royals here. If you can do next slide. Next slide. Thank you. Uh, this is Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Uh, it's like South African. I don't know what that is. But, um, you know, they announced their engagement on Instagram. And that's how we do things now, right? And so in our modern culture, I was a PR major in college. If I was to just construct the Bible and I was to tell and consult John the Baptist of where he should tell this important message that there's a mighty one to come, I would say go to Jerusalem, call the press, go on the steps of the temple and announce, hey, guys, listen up. Something big is really about to happen. But instead... John gives his message, next slide, here, in a dirty, small river. Not where PR people would tell him to do this. And this is where the message began. And this is what the message said. Next slide, verse 7. It says, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. That's his opening line of the message. 
It's the first time John's quoted here in Mark. Hey, there's one coming. He is so mighty that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Let me give you some context of why he used that term, untie your sandals. In fact, if you go to the Getty Villa, next slide, you can see this eight-foot statue of the emperor Tiberius. Tiberius um, was the emperor over all of the Roman Empire during the time of John the Baptist. What's interesting about this statue is, one, it was designed in 37 AD. Not 1937, 37. It's still here. It was preserved in a volcano in the ash of it. We found it in the, not we, (laughs) someone found it in the 17th century. And you can go to the Getty Villa and you can see it today. If you zoom down into Tiberius's feet of the statue, you see what a Roman sandal would look like in the first century of John the Baptist's day. Not crazy, not totally different than ours, but you can see the straps on the sandal, right? So in this culture, if you were a wealthy person, you would walk around town and your feet would get dirty wearing sandals like this. You know, plumbing was basically the sewers of the Roman streets, so you probably would step in that at some point. The animals would do their business on the streets, and you probably would step in that as well. Let alone you just have open shoes. Anyone that's worn rainbow sandals before knows that after a while, your feet get dirty wearing sandals, right? Well, if you're a wealthy person in this culture, when you return back to your home and you had servants, your servants would untie your shoes and wash your feet. But here's the thing. Here's what I've read about. This is fascinating. Is that there was a hierarchy in a home of who did what. And most of the servants would not do this job. They would say, no, 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 no. Even though I'm a servant in this household, taking off someone's sandals and washing their feet is beneath me. And so this job in a rich home would go to the lowest of the low. So if you have servants as the lowest in the society, then the lowest of that society were the ones who had the task of untying sandals and washing feet. So here's John the Baptist saying, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of lowest to the mighty one who is to come. Do you get that? The humility of John, but also the weight of who he's talking about. I'm sure the people listening were wondering, man, this is, this guy coming after him must be huge. If if John's not even, can't even say he can be the servant of servants to this guy. Like, like, what is to come? This was John's message. You can also read about John the Baptist. You may want to write this down if you have your sermon notes. You, you can write down that you can find this story in Matthew chapter 3, in Luke chapter 3, and in John chapter 1 and 3. So all four Gospels basically quote this idea of John saying, I am not worthy to serve the mighty one who is to come. In John chapter 3, some disciples of John come to him and say, John, are you sure you're not the Christ? Because you're pretty awesome. And John says, no. He says in John chapter 3, these powerful words, he says, the one, the mighty one is the bridegroom, and I am just a friend 
of the bridegroom. I officiated a wedding last Saturday, and one of my favorite parts of a wedding is when the groom is standing here, and the bride walks down the aisle, and all the attention is on the bride, right? But one of my favorite things to do is to look at the groom and just see his face as he's seeing his beautiful bride walk down the aisle. So last Saturday, I officiated a wedding, and I have to just confess to you, uh, I knew the groom, and I knew the bride very well, but I didn't know any of the groomsmen. And in this moment, I can't even tell you any of their names. <laughs> but that's okay, because none of them were getting married. It was the bride and then the bridegroom who were the ones that were important to know the names of. And yet, what, can you imagine how strange it would be if one of the groomsmen, halfway through the ceremony, is like, <clears throat> Uh, excuse me, excuse me, um, just a minute, uh, time out. <laughs> hey, my name's Matt, one of the groomsmen. Um, glad you guys all came today. I hope my suit looks okay. Just got this tailored at Friar Tuck's about 30 minutes ago. Um, I just want to let you know that I'm kind of nervous up here, so, you know, don't stare at me too much. But, you know, it, it's just a privilege to stand here as the third groomsman. And um, so if you need me for anything, I'll be at the reception. Come talk to me. Okay, time in. Go ahead. <laughs> Can you imagine the bride and her death stare, or let alone the mother of the bride and her death stare at that groomsman? Because culturally, we just know it's not about the groomsman. John is saying, I am just a friend of the groomsman. That's my role. I deflect glory into the groom, in a sense, into the mighty one who is to come. He then says in John 3, this is so good, I must decrease and he must increase. That was really John's mission statement as the messenger. There was a cool story that happened on Monday. This is, uh, if you can go to the next slide. This is the backup quarterback of Alabama, Roll Tide. And he is from Hawaii. He's a freshman. He's 18 years old. Millions of people watching the national championship football game on Monday. He's the backup quarterback. I don't know if you know about football, but backup quarterbacks don't normally play. <laughs> but Alabama was losing to Georgia, and in the second half, Coach Nick Saban asked Tui Tongvelaya Lo <laughs> to come in the game. He comes into the game, and he leads Alabama on these great touchdown marches, and Alabama ends up winning, spoiler alert, winning the game. This was last Monday. And he's interviewed by ESPN. This is a screenshot of him being interviewed by this ESPN reporter. And I want you to hear what Tui, 18 years old from Hawaii, this is what he said. This is pretty cool. He says, first and foremost, I would just like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With him, all things are possible. And that's what happened tonight. All glory goes to God. I can't describe what God's done for me and my family. Who would have ever thought I would be here right now in this moment? Isn't that cool? Now, even a backstory to this is this ESPN reporter graduated from Georgia, the rival school they beat. <laughs> but she has a really cool story, too. She became a Christian at Georgia. And so here she is as a brand new Christian. She's like 24 herself. And she's interviewing Tui, letting him have this platform 
to explain his faith. Isn't that cool? This is, I must decrease, he must increase. Now, the hope is, is that a guy like Tui and all of us would not just say all glory to God when we win, but also when we lose, right? Because God deserves glory no matter what. But I thought this was a kind of a neat moment even from this week. And so here's John saying, I'm not even worthy, the mighty ones to come. And then look at verse 8 again of Mark 1. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is why the one to come is the mighty one. Is because all John can do is wash people from the outside. In fact, in the other Gospels, John, people ask him, well, John, what do you want us to do? We repent of our sins, but then what? And John basically gives them a to-do list. Go take care of the poor. Go watch out for those that are vulnerable, which are great things that we're called to do as, as Christians. And then all John can do is give them a prescription for the outside. But what he's saying here is, I can only do the outside, but the mighty one to come will cleanse you from the inside. You see, we can wash cars, but you can't wash the human heart. There's only one that can cleanse the human heart of sin, and that is the one that John says will come. Titus talks about it when he says that the Spirit of God through Christ comes into our life at the point when we place our faith in Jesus. And the Spirit of God seals us to the day of redemption and empowers our lives to live for Jesus, to live the inside-out transforming, transforming life that Jesus came to, gave us, to give us. And so this is John's message. I'm unworthy. There's a mighty one to come, and he's mighty because he cleanses from the inside, not just the outside. And then you look at the next verses, verse 9. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. And so people were wandering from Jerusalem, which was to the south of the Jordan River. They were wandering through the wilderness built by the Romans out into this desert oasis in a sense. Here's Jesus coming from the north, from Nazareth. He's not described as coming with anyone. He walks alone. He shows up at the Jordan River. And this is the moment that Mark's been building to. You have the messenger, you have the messenger's message of this mighty one, and then we're introduced to the star of the gospel of Mark. Verse 10 or verse 9, in those days Jesus, I said, came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So we see Jesus now on the scene. And the rest of Mark, we'll see Jesus as the central character. Now, if you flip your sermon notes, if you have them, they're in your bulletin, you haven't pulled them out yet, flip to the back of that. It's called our Digging Deeper section. There's a couple of theological points that I don't have a ton of time to describe here in this moment, but you can read even some thoughts there. But there's a few theological questions that are brought up by Jesus' baptism. One of those is, why was Jesus baptized if John's baptism was for the repentance of sins and Jesus didn't have any. And you can read more about that, but the cliff note version is this, is that Jesus was baptized primarily as an example of his followers 
or his followers to follow, but also because he was obeying the Father. He tells John in the other Gospels, you must baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus was completely obedient to the Father. And so the Father's asking me to be baptized, and so in obedience, Jesus says yes to fulfill all righteousness. And so John says, okay, I'll baptize you. And so he does. And Jesus goes into the Jordan. Picture that. The God of the universe, the one who created everything we know, humbling himself and going in the water and then coming out. It's an incredible scene. And then it gets better. Verse 10, immediately, and Mark will say that word a lot as we go through this study. Immediately, immediately, he says this. Coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. So you have the entire triune Godhead present here. God the Father, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit encompassed her in the form of a dove, or like a dove descending upon him. And then verse 11, and then a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. The Greek of this says the heavens were torn open for the Father to give this miraculous blessing on the Son. Right before, we're going to read next week, Jesus enters in to the desert for his temptation. He is gifted with this blessing from the Father. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. If you are a follower of Jesus, follow me on this. You also hear these words from the Father because of Jesus Christ. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The reason that we also can hear those words from the Father is not because of how great we are, how polished we are, how many ducks in a row we have, how many church services we attend. The reason that we can hear those words that were authored to Jesus and we can apply them to ourselves is because what Jesus has done for us. Let me just recite the beauty of the gospel once more for all of us. Jesus came into this world and he lived the life that you couldn't live, that I couldn't live. Jesus went to the cross not for anything that he had done, but for what you and I had done. It's called sin. Jesus died on the cross and he shed his blood because the Bible says without the, with shedding, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus was, as we said earlier, placed into a tomb. But the grave could not hold Jesus. Death did not have the final say over Jesus. In fact, Resurrection Sunday is the day that death died. As Jesus rose again from the dead, overcoming sin, conquering death, and he is alive today. And the Bible says that whoever believes in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will have the forgiveness of sins once and for all, your past, your present, and this is crazy, even your future. 
Jesus takes care of all of it on the cross. And we're made new. And that's why you can stand before a holy God and you can hear the words, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Because Jesus and his robes of righteousness clothe you. Isn't that good news? And so here's what I want us to do. Yeah. Here's the application. Be a messenger. John the Baptist said, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just one of the friends. He must increase, I must decrease. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. That's the posture that we're called to take as messengers. To divert the glory from ourselves and onto Jesus Christ. What would it look like when the next time someone compliments you for a Christian virtue? Like, wow, I'm just really impressed. Like, I've watched you at work and you're just so patient with people. And I, I just really am impressed by that. Or you're at school and someone's like, you're always joyful. Even when you have a bad day, you're joyful. How cool would it be as a messenger of Jesus? In vain of John the Baptist, if you said, the only reason that you see that in me is because of Jesus Christ. He's the mighty one in my life. He's changed my life. Apart from him, I'm bitter. (laughs) I keep track and records of everyone's wrongs. I don't wait for anything. But because Jesus has changed me, that's what you're seeing in me. So I point to the mighty one. What would it look like even on Tuesday when you go back to work or school? Someone asks you the obligatory question. How was your weekend? And you said the normal stuff like, oh, it was good, you know, so nice and warm on Saturday and saw a movie. And what if you said, I went to church and the preaching was, but the message, (laughs) the message was so encouraging to me. Is that my life is about Jesus Christ and his beautiful name. My life's been changed and cleansed by Jesus. And I just want to live my life that everyone can see that that he is my God. What would that look like in your own words? (laughs) If that was your response to how was your weekend? Now, maybe that's not at the checkout line at Costco. But in the context of your relationships... How can you be less of the star of the show and make Jesus front and center? This was John the Baptist and his message. And the message was so true as Jesus bursts on the scene. So here's what we're going to do. A few next steps and I'm going to invite us to worship. One, and we can go to the next step slides. We'd love to even do this in community. If you can keep going. If you're not in a life group, we want you to join one in 2018. It'd be great just to be reminded of these truths. Because if you're anything like me, don't you forget. <laughs> On a Tuesday at 3 o'clock, it's hard to remember sometimes who Jesus is. A life group can be a group of people that come alongside you, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week to encourage you and pray for you and for you to be able to encourage and and, and pray for as well. If you're not in a life group, you need to be in one. And on the back of the notes, you can figure out some ways of how you start 
in that process. Also, if you are not a believer in Jesus, or if you sit here today and... What are these purple mauve chairs? <laughs> and you're like, I don't know. I think I believe, and I grew up like kind of around church, but, but I don't know that I know. Let today be the day that you know that you know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the mighty one. It's simple. You can take even the booklet in front of you. This is the way to connect with God. You can read through that and even just make the prayer in that booklet your prayer to place your faith in Jesus Christ as the leader, the Lord, the Savior of your life. Or as Josh leads us again in worship, there'll be a few of us on both sides of the platform, just kind of in the corner. No one's going to see you. But if you have questions about Jesus or if you want today to be the day that you know, come see us. We'd love to lead you to a place where you put your faith in Jesus Christ. As we worship right now, I've asked Josh to do a song that's become kind of an anthem for many of us. It's called Wonderful Name. And in this song, here are some of the lyrics. It starts with adoration when it says this. You were the word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord most high. Your hidden glory in creation, now revealed in you are Christ. What a beautiful name it is, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. Isn't that good? So you're going to have an opportunity to, to sing that, to make that your adoration this morning. But then listen to the bridge. It goes from adoration to a declaration. And this is powerful. It says, you have no rival, speaking of Jesus. You have no equal. Now and forevermore, our God reigns. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. Make that your declaration as we live this Christian life. Let's worship. Oh, I 
Declare this truth together Death could not hold Oh, death could not hold you They'll talk before you You silence the voice of sin and The heavens are open The praise of your glory For you are the 